Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Friday, August the 14th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Today I am joined by Michael Brendan Doherty. Uh, Listeners may remember Michael from a previous podcast in which we discussed his book, My Father Left Me Ireland, a a meditation on an exploration of national identity and personal history from his own very particular Irish-American perspective. Uh, And that book, by the way, is still available in all good bookshops. I know that for a fact because I was in just such a bookshop only last week and saw a copy of it there. But in his day job, my Michael is a senior writer at National Review, which is one of the foremost publications of conservative thought in the United States. He is also a visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute's Division of Social, Cultural and Constitutional Studies. And a recent article in the New York Times cited him as one of the writers who would be instrumental in shaping Republican thinking in the post-Trump era. So what better week to have him on than this one with Kamala Harris officially announced as Democratic vice presidential nominee and preparations underway for what are going to be, I think, some of the weirdest party conventions in modern US history. Michael, you're very welcome. Thank you so much, Hugh. I'm glad to be here again. An easy question first. Of the two candidates in November, who would you like to see uh, be elected president? Oh, jeez. <laughs> um, I, I will not be voting for either of these. I'm also in New York, so it's an easy way to pass off responsibility because Donald Trump would have no chance of winning in New York. So I can I can stay pure, journalistic and uh, detached from the actual outcome. So you're going to be you're going to be sitting this one out. Yes, as as I did, as I did in 2016. I mean, National Review, um, which, which, of course, is full of a multiplicity of different opinions, but it, it has it is not pro-Trump, but it's not part of the never Trump coalition of former Republicans or conservative anti-Trump people, things like that. Some of, some of the campaigns we see that have been up and running for the last couple of months, like the Lincoln Project. Right. Um, in 2016, uh, National Review, I, but that was before I joined National Review, but in 2016, the magazine opposed Trump's nomination um, and preferred uh, other candidates instead. And then um, I don't think said anything about the the general election race as far as a, an institutional endorsement. Um, so yeah, we've, we've maintained views. I mean, it's always been this way at National Review. I remember very famously in the 1980s, um, as conservatives, some of them got tired of Ronald Reagan, uh, there was a phrase among conservatives saying, oh, let Reagan be Reagan. In other words, like let him be unloosed from his advisors and and so on. And a, a very famous voice at National Review said, well, let someone else be Reagan instead. Um, so, yeah, there's always been a little bit of um, distance between conservatives that are, are writing, maybe conservative intellectuals and the Republican Party as a electoral project. And I hope it remains that way. Would it be fair to say, though, that 
although you're going to be sitting things out and you're not going to be voting for Trump, and uh, we might talk a little bit more about, about, about him later, that there were elements of what Trumpism represented in 2016 within the Republican Party elements that you would have had some sympathy for, um, things like um, a less interventionist approach to foreign policy, uh, perhaps a greater concern for those left behind by uh, the economic progress, which some people were benefiting for, but not all, those kinds of issues? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Trump, you know, sometimes he would say just try to make promises to just about every constituency in um his his electoral messaging um but you know he could be pr- he broke very decisively with republican orthodoxy on a couple of issues he you know for one he very clearly said that the iraq war was a mistake um a horrible foreign policy mistake I agreed with that. Um, he promised that uh, on healthcare issues, he was going to take care of everyone. Um, still not sure what he exactly meant by that, uh, but it was at least a, a different message. And he um, really broke with the party's kind of more recent free trade orthodoxy, uh, particularly on China. And this is something that, it's been examined a little bit more in the Republican Party um, since he did so. I think, you know, you'd look from about 2015 onward, a lot more, uh, many more studies have come out about the costs of China shock to certain regions of the United States and whether it's even driving, um, you know, early death uh, among a subset of um, people in America where life expectancies are going down. So, you know, he definitely, in a sense, was ahead of the curve on those, on those issues. And, and yes, I, I agreed with the direction he was pointing in, if not always the, uh, approach he took, um, to get media attention, uh, for these issues. But yes, uh, he did signal a big break, and it's it's one that's, I think, been coming for a while in the Republican Party. Um, you know, American politics is always realigning. It's always in a state of flux. And, um, you know, in the early 1990s, when the Republicans took Congress for the first time in decades, you can go back to journalism of that time and find, uh, you know, David Brooks, the New York Times columnist, uh, when he was quite young, uh, remarking on how upwardly mobile, uh, you know, rich Republicans in places like Cook County, Chicago, uh, they couldn't make sense of this more populist sounding culture war Republican Party that was emerging underneath them. And uh, they were repelled by it in some ways. And what you what you found over the last uh, twenty five years is a lot of those voters have left and become Democrats, and another set of voters has been trickling in. Uh, and that set of voters was crucial to Trump's victory in twenty sixteen in places like Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan. Um, so there's a there's a you know, the Republican Party has lost, um, you know, it used to be a joke that the 
Episcopal Church was the Republican Party at prayer. Well, you know, Episcopalians would much more likely be uh, liberal Democrats now. And um, downwardly mobile, uh, you know, unchurched evangelicals would be a big part of Trump's base uh, at this point. So those former Democratic constituencies are coming into the Republican Party. And I think over time, the the kind of economic views that they had in the Democratic Party before will trickle into the Republican Party. I mean, not just as they were uh, in the FDR, in the in the Franklin Delano Roosevelt coalition, but uh, you will see some change, or you should see it. You should expect to see it. I mean, that process and the tensions it causes, we can kind of see it happening in front of our eyes, can't we? I mean, it strikes me, I mean, every party is to some extent a coalition uh, of different interests and, and different positions, and particularly in a political system which privileges a binary situation where you only have two large parties essentially contending for for power. But you look at the moment at the, the, the stalemate over what to do next in terms of a financial stimulus for uh, the US economy as the, uh, as the pandemic continues, and this deep, deep divide within um, the Senate majority of Republicans on what to do. But between, I suppose, on the one hand, uh, traditional um, fiscal conservatives who don't want to throw more money as they see it at the problem. And on the other hand, I suppose, a combination of people who don't ideologically have, have the same level of problems with, with putting money into the into the economy and probably some who are afraid of losing their seats as well. Right. And, you know, a little bit of that is the, an age divide, right? Some of the, the, I mean, so many politicians in the United States are well over 70, but um, some of the younger Republican senators who are most likely to be the bigger spenders, at least on uh, this particular issue. Um, it is it is a developing uh, thing, though. You will find that even the more populist identified uh, figures in the Republican Party like Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri, um, they will still uh, take fiscally conservative votes where they can. Um, so there, there's a balancing act some of these senators, I think, are trying to do between uh, an old guard and, uh, you know, a rising generation of voters in their party. I mean, you mentioned Missouri. Uh, I was listening to a progressive podcast uh, last week and they were discussing a recent um, ballot measure in Missouri, Missouri being essentially a red state. And uh, the ballot measure mandated the state government to um, expand Medicaid, which essentially, without getting into the horrible details of how healthcare works in the United States, uh, essentially meant an expansion of Obamacare to an additional 200,000 or so people in the state who wouldn't have had it otherwise. And they were obviously, they, they were, because of their political position. They were celebrating this as a political triumph. They were also mapping it against the, the traditional Democratic-Republican binary of American politics. And one of the things they expressed concern about was that in this red state, this had passed by 52 or 53 percent, but the people who had swung in favour of it were not actually the people who were going to benefit from it. They, they were actually people in the more prosperous suburbs around the cities, and the vote against it uh, remained strong in the more conservative rural areas where most of the people who would have benefited from uh, from this expansion in the first place <laughs> would you know would have actually got health care that they had didn't have previously and I suppose one way of asking a question about that is what the hell is going on but I suppose a slightly more sophisticated way would be is this a sign that the culture wars trump uh, economic uh, economic self-interest uh, they 
do. Um, and I think it's particularly on those issues of, um, you know, di- redistribution. Um, the, the old binary is still true that, that, um, you know, oftentimes Democrats are advocating for programs that benefit Republican constituencies and that Republicans are more likely to oppose them. I mean, you just, you've, this has been true now for years as the Republican Party captured more and more of the senior vote in the United States. That means the Republican Party's constituency is for, um, depends on Social Security uh, spending. Um, even as the Republican Party figures are much more likely to say they want to reform or change the system or privatize the system uh, in some way. Um, so that's still true. However, I do think that there is um, a rising pride among some Democratic politicians and figures that the big Silicon Valley companies and Wall Street are tilting more and more towards the Democrats and away from Republicans. Um, Now, uh, all these sectors have figures in them who will donate to Republicans. Um, They they donate to both parties uh, pretty conspicuously. But, um, you know, you're seeing in investors' notes from, uh, you know, major hedge funds, you know, real uh, celebration of the pick of Kamala Harris to be on the Democratic ticket. Um, that is a newer phenomenon where you're seeing, you know, Wall Street really coming around to politicians that have a reputation as being quite progressive in many ways. Um, is there bad faith on all sides here then? Are there conservative Republican politicians who claim that they want to cut the size of the state but are quite happy that the kind of gridlock you get in American politics is going to prevent them ever doing that in any any meaningful way at the at the congressional or senatorial level? And on the other hand, you have Democratic politicians who claim to be, uh, liberal is a very confused term, it seems to be this way, but progressive on some, on some of these kind of issues, but are actually being bankrolled by the 1%. Yeah. I mean, yes, you, you do have that. I mean, it's 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 a large country, Hugh, so there's people have to contain some contradictions. Uh, and um, these are pretty big contradictions, though. No, it it is. And in, in some ways, they may be unsustainable um, in the long term. I mean, and, and it's the same thing. I think, uh, you know, a lot of your listeners, Hugh, you know, they would have been following the kind of realignment that has happened in the United Kingdom, where uh, traditional labor constituencies all of a sudden, um, or maybe not so all of a sudden, um, maybe they were close to tipping towards Theresa May in the previous election, and then finally in in the last election where Boris Johnson led the Tories, he you know took a wrecking ball to uh, you know to the the to the labor strongholds. Um, so the same thing is happening in, in the U.S. I mean, uh, if you look in the last 30 years, college-educated voters uh, used to be an overwhelmingly Republican constituency. Now they're an overwhelmingly Democratic constituency. Um, you know, it used to be that Republicans kind of filled out their majorities with 
Northeastern moderates now, they fill them out with um, Southern and Midwestern populists. So, you know, like I said, it's it's just a, a kind of process of ongoing realignment in, in the country. And um, it benefited Trump. Uh, it may not be enough for him again in 2020. Uh, but it'll it'll continue going on, you know. Uh, this this formulation of politics, I think, is still rising. But of course, it will it, it will reach its uh, height um, at some point, and then you know a new realignment will happen in American politics again. That's all very very philosophical. Let's get down to the nitty gritty. I saw you tweeted earlier this week that uh, uh, the the um, the choice of Kamala Harris was a mistake. Why is it a mistake? So I think it's it's probably not a fatal mistake. Um, I still think you would have to say Biden is the favorite in November. Um, I think it was a mistake because uh, Kamala Harris was, I think, pretty unsuccessful in her own run for the presidency, um, that she was uh, not very appealing to voters, that she you know, because she brought, um, uh, because she brought such an enthusiastic reaction from, uh, you know, what you call liberal elites, I think that this, this kind of impeaches the brand Biden offers voters, right? That this, uh, Biden has a foot in the old Democratic Party, the, um, you know, in the old, Franklin Delano Roosevelt coalition to some degree. And he, uh, that was his strength. Um, and he appealed, appealed particularly to, uh, black voters as well. Um, so the choice doesn't quite reinforce it. Uh, what we've seen is the enthusiasm coming from, you know, uh, celebrities, hedge funders, wall street, um, Silicon Valley, in particular, um, you know, she's very tied into um, the Silicon Valley money. I think uh, the publication Recode, which kind of follows the the industry and the money in Silicon Valley, um, quoted top Democratic fundraisers saying she's the safest pick for the donor community. And I think Joe Biden's advantage as a candidate for the Democratic Party was that he didn't seem to have this um, overclass sneering attitude toward the deplorables out in uh, the hinterlands. He didn't. He didn't hate the backwoodsmen of the American electorate, and um, I think Kamala changes that a little bit. Um, it may not be that voters quite know her as a, you know, a San Francisco, um, you know, a product of San Francisco's high society politics. Uh, but I think I would be worried that they will get to know her as that. I mean, these, these, these choices generally don't make a huge amount of difference. I mean, people think that Sarah Palin maybe ended up being a drag um, on McCain in 2008, but Sarah Palin in a way was a Hail Mary pass from John McCain because he was losing anyway and it just didn't it didn't work, but he probably would have lost anyway. Otherwise, I mean, people can barely remember who ran with Hillary Clinton only four years ago. Yeah, I would say, you know, it. however, it does remind me at least the spark of energy that 
Harris has brought to what was a pretty sleepy race uh, reminds me of 2008 and the choice of Sarah Palin. Um, Harris is obviously a more accomplished uh, politician than Palin in many ways, um, more impressive. Um, but uh, there's suddenly this newer energy. I mean, we've seen it even even at National Review, our traffic numbers uh, entirely surged uh, as conservatives were were kind of looking into her again. And uh, I've noticed on on the other side, there's been a surge of interest among you know upwardly mobile um, liberal women in the suburbs for the the Biden Harris ticket. Um, so all of a sudden, I think what you've had is instead of um, what the Harris pick has done is um, it's kind of put a, a vision of the future of the the Democratic Party. Um, at the end of Joe Biden's proposition, right? Joe Biden has said in some ways that he's a transitional candidate, a transitional president. Um, and so naturally his pick of a vice president who's significantly younger than he is, um, you know, it suggests what direction he's pointing to where the party will go. Um, and that party is one where, you know, uh, Harris is admired as culturally very progressive, but the New York Times can say that she's a pragmatic moderate uh, because she has so much support from big business and from Wall Street and um, is not part of, a f you know, uh, she's not con confused at all with Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren, who kind of uh, articulate a more traditional, progressive, um, even democratic socialist critique of American big business. Um, I wonder, though, if that surge of interest on both sides, which you describe both for National Review and among among suburban women, um, and interest, I suppose, in the election. I mean, that's what that that's really is probably a suppressed kind of surge that's been waiting to, for something to surge on for several weeks, if not a couple of months, hasn't it? Because politics has been so low key. We've basically had Joe Biden very rarely popping up. Uh, we've Donald Trump shooting himself in the foot three times a week, and that's what politics has been for most of the summer. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, it has and it hasn't, Hugh. I'd say um, there's been suppressed interest in the race um, and suppressed interest in Donald Trump and Joe Biden, but there has been this kind of, um, you know, boiling pot aspect to American politics. I mean, uh, there are huge resentments building up in uh, American society during COVID-19 and the crisis. And, um, you know, it, one of the strange things is that Biden and Trump haven't totally tapped into them. Um, but the um, resentments over um, the scale of lockdowns, the, uh, you know, just antsy feeling that uh, they've put people in combined with, um, you know, I, I, you know, I would say many progressives look at the news from their uh, screens sitting in their homes and they, they think, oh, all these conservative Republicans in Florida, Texas, and, 
uh, Arizona have not been doing social distancing because they don't believe in science and they've extended and exacerbated this horrible uh, pandemic and America's performing so poorly in this because of Trump and this kind of leadership. And then on the other side, I think, you know, a lot of Republicans and conservatives are looking at the scene and saying, you know, uh, contact tracers are forbidden in New York state and other places from asking whether you've been to these giant protests. And, uh, a lot of democratic politicians have allowed these enormous gatherings, sometimes usually against, um, public health regulations. Um, these, these protests for, uh, abolishing the police or for justice for George Floyd uh, have continued against the law even as the law restricts people from running their business normally or going to church. And um, the amount of resentment, conspiratorial feeling, uh, and mutual anger, I think, is is built up actually in a quite frightening way. Um and the election hasn't quite captured all of that yet. Uh, I'd be fearful if it did. But um, so the, there's been political energy in the United States, but it's not it's not all focused on electoral politics. Isn't Donald Trump, though, largely responsible for what you've just described there? I mean, whatever about the, the protests and whatever about, you know, hypocrisy, argu- arguably on both sides, uh, and whatever about how much power a president has in the United States federal system. I think he has more than he has actually used. And he certainly, um, and we've seen it in many other countries, you know, we've, se- we've seen strong leadership and coherent leadership. And what we've seen from Trump is very far from strong and incredibly far from coherent. <laughs> yes. And, re- and if you look at the polls, um, the COVID-19 pandemic is the most important issue. Uh, according to respondents and Republican respondents rate the president's performance lowly. I mean, they, they, they give him higher marks than Democrats do um, from a pure partisan effect, but uh, no one has looked at his handling of this and congratulated him. Um, He's been all over the map. Um, And yeah, I mean, his, his initial, proclamations that the virus would just go away were um, unconscionably stupid. And I was proud to say so at the time. Um, And what you will find is his defenders will just try to point to some of the contradictory messages from other public health bodies um, and other, other officials that you know, mirror his or mirror the general confusion um, that the the virus has occasioned in us, right? So people will point to uh, the changing recommendations about masks or, um, you know, change other changing estimates, or they'll point to, you know, New York Governor Cuomo, whose popularity has gone up during the virus, uh, you know, arguably, uh, Early on, he, he made a decision to put patients back into nursing homes um, in order to clear up hospital beds, and by doing so, um, probably spread the uh, pandemic among 
the most vulnerable population in the state. And um, I mean, the trouble with all that, particularly looking at it from outside the United States, Michael, is that we're familiar with a lot of those problems, the nursing home problem, for example, in, in Ireland and in uh, and in other countries too. We're familiar with confusion over masks. These have all been part of the narrative as the thing has panned out over the last five months. We're less familiar with leaders talking about injecting themselves with disinfectant or retweeting lunatics who believe in alien rape of some sort or God knows what it's going to be from from week to week. I mean, that's more in the area of the, uh, um, you know, the kind of the tin pot dictators of Brazil and the Philippines, isn't it, than of a democratic country? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, one of the things, though, I think everyone in, in the world should ask themselves is what is the United States? I mean, is the United States really comparable to um, much smaller territorial Western European countries? Or is it one, you know, something more like Brazil, an enormous, uh, giant, uh, multicultural uh, Western hemispheric democracy where, um, you know, authority is less respected, where there is more violence, where there is... Um, you know, you know, I think you and I might be used to this this comparison between the United States and the United Kingdom or uh, France and Germany, but in many ways, the United States is a very different beast, um, and it, it it surprises me less and less as I age that Brazil and the United States uh, have that kind of similarity with uh, um, where there's a more direct font for. Um, you know, populist lunacy right into the uh, corridors of power. That's a very interesting point. In fact, it's one quite similar to one that was made by another Irish American journalist, Claire Malone, to me a couple of a couple of months ago when we were talking about that, what what we generally often tend to think of saving your presence as the madness of American politics. But just thinking about about the polls, uh, Nate Silver of five thirty eight dot com, who's the sort of regarded as the premier go to guy on data analysis of of the polls, released to some fanfare his model for the twenty twenty presidential election um, this week, and somewhat to my surprise given the way the polls have been over the last three months or so. He only gave Joe Biden a 71% chance of winning. And I think his rationale for that, or the largest part of his rationale for that, was the fact that politics in the United States are so volatile and so unpredictable at the moment that you have to build that into the the model he built. Yeah, I think he's correct um, to, to, to not be so certain about how this is going to go. Um, it's a very unusual election year. I mean, um, you would never have guessed that the United States would feature, you know, what what we used to call front porch campaigning, where uh, a major candidate of a major party stays at home for most of the election. Uh, but we've had that with um, Joe Biden. Um, and there's real question about whether he is, um, you know, uh, energetically up to the task. I mean, he is, uh, anyone who's watched Joe Biden for years would note that he has a very different persona in some ways. Um, he's much, he, he, he's much quieter. He kind of speaks in this much softer register than he used to. He, um, you know, one notable thing is that he, in the primary debates, uh, in the democratic party, he would finish his answers, uh, well before, the time limit was up. That is the exact opposite of the Joe Biden I grew up 
uh, watching who would speak over anyone, including uh, President Barack Obama. Um, so there's there are questions about that. There's also um, a feeling that perhaps Trump has hit the the, the nadir of his first term and the re-election campaign that, um, you know, fatality rates are going down across the United States. Uh, the economy will, um, pick up off the floor, uh, which it hit so that things may go better for him. And there's also, um, I think a, a fear that maybe pollsters, uh, aren't sure who to poll, who the electorate will really be in November. Um, every four years, there's usually a dissenting pollster. And um, this year, uh, I'd point to figure Robert Cahaly of the Trafalgar Group. Um, he's kind of risen as the a critic of the mainstream polls, um, saying that they're over-polling um, politically hyper-engaged people because they use, you know, traditional 10-minute phone surveys to identify their respondents. Um, and so they're, they tend to overestimate um, Republican... Uh, they, t- they tend to over-poll, um, you know, high-information Republican voters and maybe under-poll... Uh, you know, what you call low-information independent voters, and he thinks this is um, missing some key uh, elements that might support Donald Trump and over-polling elements that might be uncomfortable with Donald Trump. Um, although he himself, I think, still views Joe Biden as a favorite in uh, a few of the swing states. He he views the race as closer than, um, than is generally accepted. I suppose one part of this is that if Trump um, uh, does come back to some extent and the polls do narrow further, um, as we know from 2016, he doesn't need to win um, a majority or a plurality of of the electorate um, due to the electoral college. So he could, as he was last time, or even even further behind, it could be 3%, 4% behind and still win the electoral college. That would lead, particularly with this pandemic-driven um, expansion of postal voting, slow counting, all these kinds of things, probably, if you had a tight election, it would probably also be a very chaotic, possibly a very vicious, a really, you know, seriously problematic electoral process. Yeah, I think this is the the thing that's really concerning me at the moment, is that... Um, uh, you know, every couple of every election sometimes features these uh, pre-election uh, ideas of conspiracy. In two thousand four, the Diebold electronic voting machines were being rigged to against the Democrats. That was one theory put forward by uh, Howard Dean and others. Um, we've we've just seen this before, or. Um, but this year in particular, um, it seems that Democrats who, who, if you're looking at the polls, should be expecting um, a hearty win for Joe Biden, you know, are really immersing themselves in the, uh, you know, stories about the post office and whether 
Donald Trump is somehow deliberately slowing down the delivery of mail. But they're right. He is. He is. He only said it. He said it yesterday, Michael. Well, he said yesterday he's, he seems to have confused a budget item for expanding postal voting from the federal level with um, with this other theory, which which has been deemed a conspiracy theory that that the mail is being slowed down deliberately um, to hamper voting. But um, there is I, I mean, I've I've written about this myself. There is this this sense where uh you know, a lot of Democrats accused even four years ago uh, that Donald Trump wouldn't accept the results of the 2016 election. And then what happened was the election happened and a significant portion of Democrats didn't accept it. And they um, became obsessed with this dossier that turns out to have been cooked up by a, a couple of academics in Cambridge and uh, filled out in detail by a failed uh, Brookings Institute uh scholar um and not exactly the product of hundreds of conversations with russian intelligence or whatever it claimed to be um and and the air is filling with these conspiracies again so a close election i think in this environment uh could lead to to something really heady um and i think um you know, there are some progressive groups that are planning massive demonstrations leading up to the election. And, uh, you know, there's talk uh, on the edges of the political scene of color revolution um, that's been tipped in the Atlantic monthly. And um, so, yeah, I think you could see something really... That's a color revolution like the Orange Revolution in Ukraine, sort of Maidan Square protests, that type of thing. And there's been all these comparisons, like the idea that... Uh, you know, uh, Donald Trump uh, was was creating a model of how he'll deal with post-election uh, resistance the way that uh, they cleared uh, Lafayette Square in front of the White House a few weeks ago so he could take his photo op with a Bible in front of St. John's Church. You know, people immediately started making comparisons to the Euromaidan. Um, and I think a lot of Democrats have also, you know, because they've grown up in a country where Republicans have seated um, presidents without winning the popular vote in 2000 and in uh, 2016, uh, you know, there's some defection from the constitutional system that allows this to happen. Uh, now, if the presidential contest were a popular vote contest, uh, both parties would be different parties. They would run differently. They would campaign entirely differently than they do now. Um, and the results would be different. Um, the whole pattern of advertising and and electioneering would be different in that system. It would be better, wouldn't it? Um, it, it, it would mean that you, you would actually, your vote in New York, which you mentioned at the start of the thing, would actually have a purpose. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you one vote and in 170 million or whatever. Um, in as much as every other single vote had a purpose, it would have a purpose, which it doesn't, as you said at the outset, doesn't have right now. Right. Well, I mean, it, I, I don't want us to be thrown back into the, the debates in the Federalist Papers about how an extended republic ought to work and legitimacy could be founded in, in a continental-sized republic. Um, 
but no, it, it would be it would be different. But in the in this case, with there, that's not how the elections are run. Um, I don't know that it would be better. I mean, the the constitutional system, you know, was dealing with this problem of an extended republic and state governments underneath it and how they would adhere together. And, um, but just to, just, just to take you at one point, and God knows we're not going to get into the whole kind of ancestor worship of the founding fathers and all that kind of stuff in the United States. But a simple thing, which is not unconstitutional, as far as I know, is that if the electoral college votes of each state accurately reflected the percentage of the vote won by each candidate in the state, well, then this problem would not arise. And again, your vote would have meaning. That's, that is also that is also true. Um, but, you know, these are, uh, the presidential election is this, uh, you know, it is a process that helps bind these different states together in one union and bind different regions of the country together. And it's not, unth- you know, it's not unthinkable in, in these kind of systems that you, you want, um, legitimacy for some. I mean, there will be lots of areas that get no, uh, that would get no campaigning at all in, um, a totally popular vote system, right? There would be, uh, places that would be passed over entirely just because the voters are too dispersed, um, in in those, you know, in those places. So, uh, you know, you'd be trading one set of ignored voters maybe for another set, um, but in any case, there's been, the fact is there has been this gradual defection from these, uh, anti-majoritarian features of the American constitution among Democrats and progressives. And I think, uh, at least notionally, you know, there are, you know, views of reforming the Senate or the electoral college are much more common. And I think if Donald Trump won a second term due to uh and and there was a split between the electoral college result and the popular vote uh, i think it could get very heady very fast can i just to close just offer you two different scenarios and see what you think of them and i should say because i don't have a vote at all in this election and i'm not constrained by what i say i mean as you probably guessed i think that donald trump is a human stain on american politics i think he's a a thug probably a criminal he's a racist he is uh, one of the worst politicians ever to rise to such a position in a in a democratic society that having been got off my chest um if he clearly loses in november and steps down um in january how does the Republican Party and conservatism in the United States contend with his legacy, whatever the hell that might be? I mean, it depends. I mean, <laughs> uh, I mean, it depends how how he comes down. Um, you know, if it ends in a color revolution, I mean, it, it just might be de-Trumpification and I'll be calling you from some prison or something. Um, but... Uh, American politics has an astonishing ability to forget the past, um, the, even the immediate past. Um, you know, I uh, am generally very anti-war, and the Iraq War uh, was the defining issue uh, as I was coming into political journalism and politics, and uh, 
I thought the Republican Party would always be committed to this, um, you know, kind of messianic uh, view of itself uh, and, and of the American nation as this uh, democratic hegemon bestriding the whole world and tutoring uh, every person from the Middle East to every atoll in the Pacific Ocean on how to be democracies. Uh, and then the Bush presidency ended in failure and people moved on remarkably quickly. Um, you know, uh, Jeb Bush was left defending his brother's Iraq war in the primary, but he was defending it more than George W. Bush himself defended it in his own memoir. I think Donald Trump, uh, if he loses in November will, uh, what you will see immediately is his opponents and skeptics in the Republican Party who overwhelmingly or, or who disproportionately are people that have access to media outlets and and so on. Uh, they'll say, I told you so, and that um, this was a stain and we have to move on. And I think it will be, I think it will be shockingly quick and there will be uh, no satisfaction for those who you know, like uh, Michelle Goldberg writing in the New York Times yesterday, you know, want to see some kind of truth and reconciliation about the Trump era. I just, um, I highly doubt that's going to happen. No criminal charges? No, I don't think so. I mean, it's the same thing. I mean, uh, people think these things are going to happen. Lock her up was a chant four years ago. It led to nothing. Um I, I don't think there will be, I mean, there may be some like little harassing investigations and things like that, but people will move on. It's a, it's a, it's a country with a very, very short memory in many ways. And, um, yeah, Trump, Trump will go and he'll, and he'll be gone. Okay. And then the other scenario is Trump is reelected and we have what Trump unbound, whatever that might mean. Well, the thing is Trump, uh, and I wrote this before his election, Trump is completely bound and tied up. Um, you know, he's been unable to pass much of his agenda in Congress. Even when he had a Republican majority, he ended up ceding to their traditional uh, agenda items like a tax cut uh, rather than a big border wall or, uh, you know, a major trade war with China, which he really only conducted at the edges um, he's been unable to staff the the appointed positions of the executive branch of government because so many Republicans won't work with him. Uh, and that's led to a lot of the boobish incompetence, his inability to execute uh, his even his orders to withdraw troops from Syria. I mean, he just he can barely get things done as it is in his first term when they're still, an electoral and spoils kitty to dangle in front of Republicans in a second term. Uh, you know, I would expect more feuding with media figures on Twitter um, and, and less approach to governance at all. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, he's, this is a man who's clearly enslaved to his passions and his, um, his ego. So I, I don't think of him as, particularly liberated in any respect. Um, 
So yeah, I, 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 um, a, a second term would be, uh, it's hard to even imagine how it would function, uh, given the way he's had such difficulty retaining people, even in the cabinet. And when they leave, uh, they tend to hate him and write nasty books about him. This is, uh, pretty unusual, um, for everyone who leaves a White House position or nearly everyone to write a nasty tell-all. Um, I mean, we really haven't seen anything like this since Andrew Jackson, um, someone who's so detested by Washington society. So I, I don't know how a second term would function. I mean, I take the point about the incompetence. I take the point about the incompetence and the, the inability to implement an agenda, whatever that agenda might be. But there is, we've had a couple of people on, uh, Masha Gessen among them, um, also in a slightly different way, Michael Lewis talking about his book, The Fifth Risk, talking about kind of intentional incompetence, kind of uh, damaging the institutions of government in the United States by by neglect or willfully damaging them or not appointing people to positions. I mean, The Fifth Risk is a is an interesting book on that subject. So four more years could do, if you accept that thesis, four more years could do a hell of a lot of damage. Yes, I think, I think four more years could do damage. I think he... Um uh, I think there are huge risks to how his presidency has operated. I mean, that's that's why, despite you know some surface affinities, uh, you know, I've never been able to bring myself around to admire much of what he does. Um, you know, there's uh, there is a real risk. I mean, the worst risks that I feared in 2016 have not come to uh, fruition. Um, but they could in, in a second term. And, um, you know, you could also see, I mean, I'm surprised you haven't seen more of it, but on a, a geopolitical level, um, uh, people have treated the first Trump four years as potentially a blip on, on the horizon. And, and I think many uh, considerations in Europe and in Asia have been put on pause to wait and see whether he'll be reelected um, or whether, whether what his rec, uh, election represents is a long-term direction for the United States. Um, in a second term, those calculations will change. And I think you'll see uh, potential rivals um, or regional challengers in, in, in certain areas be more aggressive um, while the United States is kind of plunged into its own internal uh, crisis. Yeah, I think I think that's very true. We we'll leave it there. Listen, Michael, thank you very much for getting up at the at the crack of dawn in New York to join us. I gather you're off on your holidays tomorrow, so so do enjoy them. We'll just say thank you to uh, our producer Suzanne Brennan, and as usual, I'm encouraging you if you haven't already done so. I'm sure you have, but if you haven't, go to IrishTimes.com/slash/subscribe and sign up for unlimited access to the Irish Times. The introductory price is just one euro a month, Michael. You really should uh, try it. Have you signed up yet? <laughs> I am a subscriber here. <laughs> Excellent. That's what we like to hear. And if you want to get in touch with us, we'd be delighted to hear from you. Just email us at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. Until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening. 